Hello, everyone. Welcome to Compass Teachers Show. I'm your host, Tiffany. My job is to interview teachers around the world and tease out their teaching tactics, education research, or tools they use. Hopefully, this show can offer some ideas for you to experiment in your classroom. Episode it is on the Bal Socrates seminars. So if you don't know Socrates seminar, it's basically a teaching strategy to guide student-led discussion. And this time we are really excited to have Carrie Graham join us and deep dive into the strategy and sharing her experience with us. And Carrie is not only. A teacher, but also a writer. She lives in Kayaks in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. After graduating from Johns Hopkins University School of Education, Harry prioritized laughter, compassion, and self-expression in her English classroom. She's really grateful for and humbled by her ten years as a public school teacher. Without further ado. Let's enjoy our conversation with Carrie. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. So, Carrie, you have written some touching stories about you and your students. When you write about your teaching lives, what is the core message or feelings you want to deliver throughout your stories? Thank you for asking that. I'm really honored to be able to talk about my writing, in addition to my teaching, because I really feel like I define myself with both of those roles. So, I call my students my lovelies, and、oh, so I'm just giving you that as a heads up because I'm going to say lovelies this whole time, and I don't want you to be like, "Who is she talking about?"、Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, my lovelies are just—they're so so special to me, and. I'm so grateful to have a job that allows me to spend time with such fantastic, special people. And when I write about my lovelies, I write vignettes, so I write super short, true stories. They're anonymous. I don't give any like identifying details about my lovelies. What I do is I share really small, but Powerful moments that we share together, and I write them for two reasons. One, as a way for me to process, because I think any teacher would be able to relate to the fact that throughout our day there are so many things that happen that we just we can't fully digest, and we just want to remember or reflect on or learn from. So I write. About these moments as a way to do that, and I want people to learn about my lovelies and learn how awesome they are and how resilient and how funny, and how much they make me grow and change. So the vignettes serve a few purposes. And again, thank you for asking about them. That's amazing. So. Uh, from your creative nonfiction, "Promise Him Pencils," you wrote 
I blow him a kiss, regarding that all I can offer him is love. And in this sentence, I could really feel your feeling of a little bit of helpless, but also the power of love. So, for you personally, how do you express your love to your students and let them know that you care about them deeply? I I appreciate your interpretation of that. Thank you for sharing that. I tell them. I mean, I say it so many times a day. I say it almost immediately upon meeting them too, which I think sometimes they're like, "What? We don't even know you, lady." But I, I mean, I do. I love them, so I, I tell them. I also try to show them by making our relationship one where I mean, like, yes, I'm the teacher, so I'm ultimately the authority. But I try to make our relationship one that is as much a partnership as possible. So I ask them for their feedback and thoughts and feelings. I am not above apologizing to them when I know I've messed up, or letting them call me out and me realize that I've messed up. And I laugh with them all the time, and I think they can feel how much I love them just by how much joy they bring me. That's a really great.、Um... Like great strategy to be a partner with your students, and let them know that you care about their opinions and they are、um, worthy. So, Carrie,、um, you mentioned to me before that the high school you are teaching is very diverse, and fifty percent from Baltimore, while the other fifty from the globe. So, I'm curious about. Uh, these diverse students, other than Baltimore, what are the countries they ca- came from? And do most schools in Baltimore have diverse population, or is your school is the exception? So I know that my school has the most diverse. I'm not sure what other schools look like right now, population wise, diversity wise. I should say, this is my third school I've taught. In in Baltimore City, and the first two schools were almost a hundred percent Baltimore born and raised. There probably maybe like five-ish lovelies who were international between those two schools combined in the four years I was in those schools. At my current school, like you had said, it is about fifty percent international. I've had a few classes. Like my second period class a couple years ago was entirely English language learners. No one in that class was born in America, and they were all, you know, speaking two, three, four, five different languages.、Um, mm-hmm. To answer your question regarding where the lovelies come from, I don't even know how many countries. I know we have lovelies from Central America, from South America. From East Africa, North Africa, West Africa, from the Middle East, like we just have so many cultures represented, and it's so exciting. It's also a little overwhelming sometimes in trying to、mm-hmm. create class cultures, especially this year online. But in general, it's just really fascinating to witness, and it's an honor to be a part of. Yeah, that sounds. Really amazing. So, 
like you say the previous two schools, you tall like not really diverse, really homogeneous. So, do you do you find yourself change your like teaching uh methods or uh strategy in your classroom in this really diverse setting? Yeah, I mean, I regret that I still don't think, even though this is my sixth. Year, yeah, four plus six is ten. Yeah, <laughs> even though this is my sixth year at my current school, and so I've had these super diverse classes the whole time, I still don't think I do as well serving my English language learners as I could or I should. And I, that's an area of growth that I know I'm going to have to continue to build upon, but. The short answer to your question is that yes, I am learning that there are things, and when I deliver instruction, that I need to change so I can reach everybody. And it's been interesting to see how my lovelies receive instruction. I teach a lot of Baltimore-based work, so I. Incorporate the work of Baltimore-based writers and Baltimore-based artists in my classes, and my Baltimore lovelies, you know, they get it. Like it's just vernacular; they understand. It's sites that they're used to seeing that kind of thing. But my international lovelies don't necessarily understand some of the references, and that's not all international lovelies. You know, it's just depending on how long they've been here or what they've experienced, but. It's interesting to me to realize, like, oh, that's something that is so culturally specific to this city, and it's something that we need to discuss, you know, to make sure that everyone understands. It. I see. All right, so I think it's a good time for us to. Dive into more Socratic seminars that you have run many times successfully. So let's begin with the most fundamental question: What is Socratic seminar? Socratic seminars are discussions. I call them lovely led discussions when we have a topic. Usually, it's a text of some sort, but sometimes it's just a topic. And the lovelies will write their own questions and pose those questions to one another. And ideally, I don't speak unless I'm telling them, you know, let's get started. You have five minutes left. Let's finish up. Let's switch groups. And they're just having as organic a conversation as possible amongst each other about this topic. So, would you mind guiding us, like、um, step by step, how you use Socratic seminar in your own classroom? Maybe you can give us an example, like、um, the topic that you use and how、um, you guide them to discuss in the classroom. Yeah, so we use Socratic seminar every Friday in my class, including the first Friday of the school year. So, to answer your question about the topic, it's whatever we're reading that week. Sometimes I will do it around images, 
for around like anticipation guides, you know, like those surveys with provocative statements, agree, disagree type thing. Sometimes we do Socratic seminars about the lovelies writings, actually. So if they're working on a draft for an essay or some kind of narrative assignment, I have them prepare questions ahead of time about areas they would like support in. So how can I find better evidence for this point? Or how can I add better dialogue to this scene and have them discuss that together? So that's the answer for topic. As for how we do this, I <laughs> I tell them on the first day of school that every Friday we're going to have something called a Socratic seminar. Sometimes I show them a video about it. Sometimes I just explain it. Sometimes I've had lovelies from previous years come in and do a Socratic seminar live for them so that the current lovelies can see my previous lovelies in action and see what's expected of them. This initial announcements that they have Socratic seminars every week usually makes a lot of them terrified and sick and like scared, especially my English language learners, because some of them are insecure about their level of English proficiency. And inevitably they try to get out of it and like they meaning anyone who's nervous. And I say, that's too bad. You're going to do this and you're going to get good at it. I promise. So after that, we read the text or look at the photos or, you know, whatever our assignment is for that week. And we'll do this, you know, throughout the week, depending on how long it is. Sometimes it's a single poem. Sometimes it's a whole chapter or a few chapters. They annotate that text. And they write questions. So they write open-ended, thought-provoking, controversial questions, which, you know, we talk about the difference between open-ended and closed-ended questions. I help them with the questions if they need it, but I never, ever, ever provide the questions. And then on Fridays, I give them their groups. One group will sit in the middle of the room. <laughs> and I'm just like remembering their faces and how scared they get. It's so cute. And I say, okay, go. And the key is letting discomfort happen. And I tell them that. I say, some of you, some of these groups, we're just going to sit here and people are not going to talk and it's going to be awkward. And that's going to be what it is. If this is a six minute seminar and no one talks, we will sit in silence for six minutes. And that's what we do. Or sometimes the seminars are so raucous and lively that, you know, they yell at me when I tell them their time's up. But anyway, that's the process. Got it. So um, let me recap a little bit. Before the seminar, you would, like, at the beginning of the week, you would give them a topic. Let's say we are going to talk about racism and you would give them some resource you it could be like a video image or text to read or watch and then they will write down some questions uh derived from that and on friday you will or do they know 
which group they will belong to before the Friday, or you assign them on the spot. The only time I have ever told the lovelies which group they're in ahead of time is that class I mentioned a few minutes ago that was entirely composed. Oh my gosh, comprised of English language learners, because I realized they felt more comfortable knowing. Like which five or six lovelies they were going to be talking to, so they could kind of form relationships and familiarity amongst each other. So that is the only time when they knew the groups. Otherwise, it's random, and I try to diversify it depending on you know personality and who talks a lot, who doesn't talk a lot, who's missed class, who might get confused versus who has perfect attendance. That kind of thing. The other thing I found really interesting is that you mentioned about the seating setting. Like one group is at the center. So how's the seating setting? How does the seating setting look like? Like are other groups like surround one group? And yeah, how does it look like? Yeah, that's a good question because there are so many ways to do Socratic seminar. I know some. Teachers do multiple seminars at once, which that really stresses me out. So I've never done that, and I never want to do that. The way we do it is my classroom in real life. You know, before pandemic was set up with like a horseshoe on the outside, like kind of near the walls, and then like a horseshoe on the inside of that other horseshoe. So it's like a fishbowl. So I always tell the lovelies. When you're in the seminar, you're like sitting in these like the smaller fish bowls, like the ten desks or so that are in there. And when you're in the seminar, you're a fish. And when you aren't, you're sitting on the outer fish bowl. And I actually call those creepers because I always tell the lovelies, you should be watching and listening, but not talking. And that's what creepers do. So. They are creepers when they're on the outer circle, and fish when they when they're in the inner circle. And depending on the class size, I'll have two or three fish bowls in a single class period. So they just get up and sit in someone else's seat when it's you know depending on if they usually sit in the inner or outer circle on a regular day. So they just all rotate seats twice a period.、Mm-hmm. So,、um, the inner circle, the student in the inner circle, they can discuss around the questions they write down, and the outer circle would just observe. Is that right? They observe, and eventually, I have them taking something called creeper notes. I shouldn't say eventually. They they partially as accountability to make sure they're paying attention, and also partially to get the most out of the seminar. They take notes when they're in the outer circle. So, depending on their note-taking skill, I have them either write down things that they're hearing or react to things that they're hearing. So, inevitably, there's always someone in the outer circle who's like, "Oh, can I answer that question?" And I'm like, "No, it's not your turn." But you can write it on your paper, which is never a good enough solution. But that's an option. Got it. Could you give us an example around the topic that you discuss and and the question that the student came up with? Yes. So this week we did our Socratic seminar on 
Amanda Gorman, the poet who performed at Joe Biden's inauguration. Mm -hmm. So this week we watched two videos of her performances with different poems. We like studied the poems intently, reading the actual language. We learned about her as a person and as an artist. So a lot of the questions that came up today were related to some of them were pulling direct quotations from the poems and asking their peers to explain what those particular lines meant to them. One lovely asked if his peers thought that Amanda Gorman's, he asked if Amanda Gorman's optimism was authentic or if she was just saying what she felt people needed to hear. Someone else asked like what they think her next poems will be about. So just that kind of thing, like some speculation, some opinions, some text-based analysis. So there's usually a pretty big array of questions. Got it. So there's no boundary around the question they uh, have on mind, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what I'm going for. Like sometimes... My school is doing standards-based grading now, and so sometimes I do try to make them focus more on a particular standard. So I would say, all right, let's just focus on character development. So when we were reading Their Eyes Were Watching God last quarter, I was like, let's particularly talk about Janie and the kind of character Janie is and changes we see in Janie. But sometimes, and they prefer this, just, I just, and is a way to just you know foster their interest and their investment in Socratic seminar I just ask them whatever kind of questions they want to ask just say this is fine like just as long as you're getting the conversation going then yes let's please let's please talk about those things mm -hmm. so basically you would set a boundary according to the standards which I think makes totally sense because if there's no like living there they could come up with like tens of thousands of questions without any direction the other thing i want to touch on is that when they discuss how like how many minutes do do you give to them for discussion today my first period had two fishbowls and each fishbowl was about 15 minutes Seminars can be as quick as like five or six minutes. That's usually how I start it at the beginning of the year. And then they get longer and longer. The longest I've ever had a fishbowl has been probably almost half an hour. I always say 20 minutes, but I like really thinking about it, I think it was probably closer to 25 or 30. See, but by average, it would be five, uh, five to 15 minutes. Average, let's, yeah, average would probably be like between eight and 11 minutes. Mm -hmm. One one group uh, discuss at a time or two groups at the same time? Oh, no, time. never two groups because that stresses me out. No, no. For me, oh, okay. for me just, one, just group. one group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But other teachers do do two groups at a time. I just can't speak to that because I don't know what that's like. <laughs> And how many people, how many students are there in one group? 
I cap it at 10 because I want people, especially my more reluctant lovelies, to feel comfortable speaking. And if it's too many people in a group, then that's just, you know, really intimidating to try to bust into the conversation. I think the smallest I've ever had in a fishbowl is four. And depending on the personalities, like that can be completely fine. But if it's a bunch of quiet lovelies, then it can be pretty painful. I've noticed like the sweet spots usually like seven or eight. So when they discuss, how how do you help them to really stay on track without diverging from the topic too much? Well, before my school started using standards-based grading, I always had the I always had each class period come up with their own rubric for how I was going to grade them for the seminar. And sometimes on that rubric, there would be like some kind of criteria that basically was, you know, stays on topic or keeps keeps each other accountable, that kind of thing. And so some lovelies would just take it upon themselves to redirect the conversation or make sure everyone was staying centered. And that's what I prefer. I try very hard to let them bring it back on topic. However, and this has only happened a few times, a few times, especially if we're talking about things that relate to current events or like very common emotional experiences. Like sometimes lovelies will start straying a little bit too far from the text and I'll just be like, okay, so how can we relate that to this chapter? Or what does that, what does that make you think about what the author's doing here. And so I'll just try to subtly be like, get yourselves together, come back to the book mm-hmm. or whatever it is. You mentioned about the, you would grade them or by standards or they would come up with the rubrics before the standards-based grading. And I'm curious about the feedback that you give to them other than just a grade. Like, how do you give them the feedback in Socratic seminar? So between each fishbowl, you know, so fish one will be finished and I'll be like, right, go to your seats, lovelies. And then fish two will be in the fishbowl. And once fish two has been seated, I'll say, all right, so thank you so much to fish one. I love how you encouraged each other to speak if there were some quiet lovelies in your group. I really appreciated the text-based questions, and I was really impressed with those of you who use the text to answer the questions, like that kind of thing. So I'll just say a generic set of usually three things that I appreciated about the seminar. And then I'll say, so Fish 2, I would love if we could make sure we have 100% participation. For those of you who know you talk a lot, maybe just take a beat before you answer to give people a chance to jump in there. And again, remember we're talking about symbolism. So really be making sure that's your topic. 
like that kind of thing. So then I kind of suggest what I want them to do. And then in terms of individual feedback, I mean, lovelies will like come running up and ask, you know, how, how did I do? What did I get? And like, so we'll talk real quick in the moment sometimes. Sometimes I give them feedback by talking about the quality of their fat question. Well, the question, we call them fat questions, but of their questions beforehand. Um, and so they'll ask me to check their questions and I'll give suggestions. The most interesting conversations are always with the ones who are just really insistent that they quote unquote can't do it and they're not going to participate. And we talk about why not? And what's so scary and ways that I can help them. So sometimes I'll say, okay, well, lovelies, um, this week, Corey is going to ask the first question. So Corey, you go ahead. So that way that lovely will get a chance to not have to interrupt, not interrupt, but, you know, interject and they can just ask their question and start building the confidence of speaking on their own. So for the individual feedback, did you give to them like uh, in person or in like kind of on paper? How did you give the individual feedback? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I much prefer to do it in person because that way, I mean, and I mentioned earlier that I try to make my class as partnership based as possible. And so that way Mm -hmm. it's us having an actual conversation And it's not that, I mean, I know I keep on saying, like, they're terrified and I don't care. I mean, (laughs) but that's because, like, I know this is good for them and they will grow from it. But I do appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with them and to honor the fact that they're afraid or honor the fact that maybe they don't understand something. Like, let that fear or concern be heard. And then give them practical tips and encouragement that, you know, it's going to be okay. You can handle this. You're awesome. And you're going to regret waiting so long once you start doing this. So is the feedback given like regularly or like kind of like once a week you would have a one-to-one in-person feedback section or meeting section with um, a student you're lovely or it's more like uh, pretty random like you feel like oh you should give this particular lovely a feedback then you go to reach out to them it's more the last one because because we do this every single Friday it just becomes so routine and so lovely is generally like are aware of their own strengths and areas of improvement with the seminar. And so, you know, sometimes I'll just say something like, Hey, I really like how you did this today. Or if a lovely, for example, doesn't speak as much as they usually do, I'll ask like, what's going on today? Are you okay? Or if a lovely has a particularly good question, I'll tell them like, that's exactly the kind of thing I want you to do again. Like, please remember your thought process so you can try to ask more questions like that. Or if I have ongoing concerns, you know, like, oh, my goodness, you still didn't talk this week. I really can't wait to hear what you're going to say. The feedback that you 
are giving my based on the standards or、um, the learning learning goals or teaching goals you have on mine. So, um, other than like some standards or rubrics, what are the learning goals in Socratic seminar you want them to nurture? So, wait. So you asking the goals that I personally have for them? Or are you talking about the goals? Yeah, the, yeah. The standards and the per- the my, my personal goals. Yeah. I. Sorry, that's such a good question. I think I was just thrown. I was like, oh, no one asks me what I think. <laughs> that's why I'm so surprised <laughs> asking me that. So thank you. <laughs> I. I want them to. Be empowered, compassionate people, and、mm-hmm. well, I shouldn't say it like that. Like I'm not saying it like they aren't already, but I want them to realize that as much as they can. And so, for the lovelies who are shy or anxious or insecure about their language abilities, I just want them to grow in their confidence, and I want them to know that being uncomfortable. Doesn't mean something's impossible, and I want them all to know the power of their voice and how special their thoughts are, and how important it is that people hear their thoughts. I want them to be good listeners and compassionate listeners and compassionate with their spoken word. So, disagreeing is important and necessary. And we can do that respectfully and considerately. And agreeing is really empowering too, and exciting. And I want them to recognize how good it feels to be in solidarity with people. So that's what I want them to get from the seminars. So, what is the one most common mistake teacher made in Socratic seminar, and how would you suggest? To prevent from happening, filling the silence. Teachers talk too much, and、mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm doing that a lot this year because I'm teaching on Zoom, and the lovelies don't have their cameras on, so I can't read body language to know what's going on, and it's harder for me to gauge how close they are to saying something. In real life, I usually only talk beyond the times that I'm supposed to talk. If I'm like really excited about what they're talking about,、I'm、like oh my god, I need to answer that、mm-hmm. question too.、Mm-hmm. Or if they're factually incorrect about something, I'll wait till one of the other lovelies corrects it. And if they don't, then I'll jump in and you know say, actually, that's not what happened. Remember, you know, in the scene, blah blah blah. But like I said in the beginning, when you asked about the step by step, I tell the lovelies like, "Hey, if it's quiet, it's quiet. Like I will let the time run out, even if we're sitting here silently." And I think teachers, because we want so badly for our students to succeed, and we know that our job is to coax and to encourage. I think teachers might be inclined to. Start asking questions like, "Okay, guys, well, what about this? And what about?" And it's not that I've never done that before, but I think 
teachers aren't necessarily willing to just let the silence happen because maybe it feels like wasted time. Whereas I think it's, you know, like building endurance of like the structure of the seminar. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Carrie, for sharing so many tips and how you run the Socratic seminar. I believe lots of teachers can learn a lot from our conversation and try it out in their classroom to nurture、um, more compassionate listeners or speakers in their own classroom. And now you let's move on to. I'm cutting you off. I'm sorry. I just want to tell you, you're asking such good questions <laughs> about it, and I, and people have asked me about it for years, and like that's I've never had this kind of conversation with like the thoughtfulness with the questions you asked. So I'm sorry I cut you off,、oh, but I just needed to. Tell yeah, you no so worries. Thank, thank you so much. That that means a lot to me. I I really hope that、um, this conversation that you you enjoy and. Others can benefit a lot from it, and the la- last session would be some random and big questions for you. So the first one is: in the past few years, what are one to two books that influence your core values or thinking a lot? It can be anything. It, it doesn't need to、uh, relevant to education field. It can be anything. A book that I read this past spring by. Sumonk Kid called the Book of Longings is a fiction book written from the perspective of Jesus's wife, and that just really and Jesus's wife in the novel is a writer, and so I really loved the I love the focus on. Feminism and her being her own person and her pursuing her dreams of being a writer like that was really poignant to me. And similarly, actually, now that I'm talking, anything by Sandra Cisneros. She also writes a lot about how important you know. Being a woman is, and being a writer, and making her own choices, even if it's countercultural, and that kind of literature just really resonates in me because sometimes I feel like I say things or I do things that aren't part of the traditional narrative, and it's just really, really reassuring to see successful. And respected women, like doing that same thing, but on a bigger scale. If you have one superwoman power to change the education system in the U.S., what would it be? Oh, I like that you said superwoman. Equity. I would. I would make things fair, and they're not. Like I think, almost every single day. About how different my experience with public school was when I was in school versus what my lovelies experience, and I went to school twelve miles away from where I teach, and because things aren't equitable right now, my lovelies 
don't have the opportunities to succeed. Like my classroom is a hundred degrees, over a hundred degrees the first and last couple months of the school year. And we don't have the same access to resources and books, but they're tested on the same things that students are in districts that don't have these issues. And then my lovelies on paper can look not as accomplished or not as capable when they have a gazillion more obstacles that they're dealing with. Like, and that's just in the school building, not in their, you know, their lives and their communities. So I would, oh God, I wish, <laughs> now you got me really wishing I had the superwoman power to make things equitable and, and support students in the ways that they need to actually succeed and and to be nurtured and loved and still be challenged, definitely challenged, but like in a way that's safe because we're looking out for them. Before we close up, um, Carrie, do you have any other thoughts you want to share with our listener? Or if they want to find you online to learn more about your experience, your any information that you share, how they can find you online? Well, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me on your show. I love your conversations and I'm really honored to be among your guests. Secondly, I guess just to your listeners, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are teachers like I am and Thank you. Thank you to teachers. Thank you for working hard and caring about other people's kids and for bringing what you bring to your classroom and learning what you learn from your students. I'm just really grateful that there are so many of us in every single country trying every single day, even if it feels impossible. And as for finding me on social media, I'm Ms. Carrie Graham. What do I use? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, you know, I have my vignettes, or when I have articles published, I share those there. I tell stories about the lovelies more informally on those platforms. And I would love to connect with people. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining me today. I really enjoy our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much, t h a n k you for listening. We will put the things mentioned in the interview to the show notes. If you enjoy our show, welcome to share and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.